Shalom, everyone. It is Matt Weaver here with BibleTruthProject.com here with another episode. And today I'm going to be discussing uh, the book of Isaiah. Now, a couple of my friends and, and myself have been going through Isaiah and uh, we've made it through about 40 chapters and um, it's been quite interesting, quite a journey. It's uh, really been really exciting and really good to go through it again. It's, it's been a few years since I've really gone and in, in, uh, done in depth in Isaiah. And I have to say, uh, it's been um, it's been challenging for me again to just kind of go through it. Every time you go through the Bible, you're going to learn new things. And there's no uh, no difference with the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was uh, somebody who lived in the time of the last king, uh, King Hezekiah, in uh, down in Judah to the south. And um, he he had a, a wide variety of uh, prophecies. I, I know some people think there was actually three authors to it, but um, Jesus did not did not really allude to that. And he he would have credited it to uh, to the prophet Isaiah, singular, not 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 different people like that. So I think it's important for us um, to to use that and. Um, yeah, or to go off of that. So for me, it's been a very good, um, very good practice, very good study to go through it again. So what, some of the things that stood out to me is, you know, so, so we've been going through a lot of different scriptures. We've been going through a lot of parts of uh, Ezekiel, a lot of the New Testament. We've gone through a lot of like Hosea and Amos and Habakkuk and Malachi and and uh, Zechariah and, and uh, parts of Genesis and some of Deuteronomy. And there's just a lot of uh, text that we've been covering in our study, and Isaiah is uh, one of the longest books in the Bible. It's it's a huge volume, sixty plus chapters, and uh, it's been uh, it, it really has a lot of content that is is unique, but there's definitely content that overlaps other prophets as well. And I think um, one of the things when you're studying biblical prophecy is I'm kind of amazed at when you know the basic framework, I'll just put it this way. If, when you know the basic framework, you know the basic construct and the basic concept behind what they were prophesying. Prophecy is actually quite simple. Now, there is challenging nuances. There are challenges in uh, maybe small details or, or exactly how things will play out. But as a whole, it's not hard to figure out what's going on. It's not hard to figure out what the, the goals are. Now, some of the you know movements and locations and exact punishments or judgment or wrath, you know, some of that is maybe harder and more nuanced. But as a whole, it's really not difficult. And this is it. Basically, God created the nations, chose Israel, and promised Israel that they would be his inheritance forever. So eschatology simply is basically shining a light in that dark place that no matter what happens, that's how the end will be. The end is going to be about the redemption of Israel. Now people, of course, will ask, what about the church? Well, the church is a messianic body, body of believers, and they are the Gentiles who see great light and, and become, um, become part of this assembly. So I think we uh, we are joined to the eschatological Israel. Uh, does that mean we are full-blooded Israelites or something like that? Not that I know of. Uh, we could make that argument, but I don't go that far. I think we are simply partakers of the commonwealth of Israel, and um, all of us by faith have to, to enter in. So it, it doesn't matter whether you are blood or not. 
the only way in to the kingdom that is to come is through faith in the Mashiach and the Messiah, Jesus. And I do believe for us that is that is now, and I do believe that there's a remnant of Jews that will survive uh, the last days that will also then put their faith in Jesus. That is seemingly what Zechariah predicts when he talks about the crying and weeping that takes place. You know, for us, when we come, there's rejoicing and joy and all that, you know, connotation. But Zechariah is very distinct that when they see they actually, there's weeping involved. So I think that that's quite, um, quite telling of the circumstances. So regardless, you, you'll have to look on him uh, and, and salvation is through Jesus alone. Uh, no question. So book of Isaiah. So Isaiah is one of these um, lengthy books that starts out with a bunch of different prophecies that God gave Isaiah concerning Israel, concerning Jerusalem, concerning surrounding countries. It's also something that God um, gave uh, prophecy regarding um, the last days, of course, and um, some of the same themes that you pick up in other, uh, other books in the Bible. Some of the things that stood out for me, again, was, of course, the Jerusalem being exalted and becoming the head city of the world, I guess, um, the restoration that takes place, the rivers flowing, uh, Israel being restored, the desert blooming and uh, coming back to life. Uh, but some of the other things that really kind of interested me is that I, I, I see more of a pattern with the Isaiah narrative than I did in a lot of the other um, in the other in the other prophets is this the these ten this or I, I, I'm going to call it ten nations, but just a group of nations that seem to keep coming up in prophecy. And we, we discussed this last time and it's quite interesting when you, when you look at these different nations and I, I just, you know, based upon memory here, the nations that keep coming up are Greece. Uh, there's Persia, there's Babylon, there's Assyria, there's Tyre, uh, Edom, Moab, um, and I believe I said Egypt. Um, then there's Libya, and there's Put, which would be like uh, Ethiopia, and then uh, Saudi Arabia. And and these nations just keep coming up and up and up and up and up, and over and over and over that God is going to judge these nations, and Assyria and Egypt are going to be one with Israel. There's going to be unification there. Moab will be destroyed. Edom will be trampled. Uh, Babylon will be destroyed. Um, you know there'll be uh, repentance in down in Dedan or the you know the flocks of Kedar. They will worship on a separate altar. So there's you know some judgment coming, but they repent. There's judgment on Libya, judgment on Ethiopia. It's 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 amazing. Greece there'll be there'll be judgment on Greece. There'll be tremendous judgment on Tyre. Tyre has a tremendous amount of uh, judgment written about it. But it's just fascinating that these countries or these these titles of nations and um, cities, I guess you could say, keep coming up. So it kind of lends credence. I've been listening to another individual, uh, Chris White, who has uh, interesting books uh, about the end times. I don't know that I agree with everything Chris has to say, but he does have some good points. But he's been trying to figure out this 10-headed uh, dragon and it's just, you know, there's a lot of problems with a lot of the eschatological systems when you try to figure this thing out. But Isaiah is one of those books that talks about Leviathan, this great dragon who's just simply a chaos monster. 
And uh, Job talks about Leviathan as well and, you know, his great strength and whatever. And it's, it seems to be, correspond to a degree to the dragon of uh, Daniel 7 as well as Revelation when it talks about the dragon. Again, ten horns. And uh, in Revelation, there's a woman drunk with the blood of the saints riding it. And um, in, uh, in Daniel, there's um, the little horn speaking boastful, loud things. And Revelation, it talks about it being full of blasphemies and all that good stuff. So there's a lot of correlation between these two. But basically, I look at it as, as it seems to be a Leviathan image, uh, this dragon that is this final empire. And I was just listening today, I was thinking about Daniel 2, which is this statue that Nebuchadnezzar is shown. And this is not a prophecy per se in the traditional sense where, where there's a prophet, but this is simply Daniel's interpretation uh, to Nebuchadnezzar on what he saw. And so when you look at that, um, I, I, I just saw a little bit different view. You know, what, what, what it says is that, okay, you are the head of gold, but after you will come these other nations and these other kings. And it says kings, plural. And in the days of those kings, and it uses a plural tense, uh, in the days of those kings, the kingdom of God will come and be established and it'll swallow up those kings and take over the world. And you know, I, I wonder, maybe we're looking at this all wrong. Instead of this sequence and sequence of kings and... There seems to be some correlations there because you've got Daniel 7 and the four beasts coming out of the water and, and it seems to either be, you know, uh, subsequent kings or it is, you know, contemporaries can, uh, uh, contemporaneous kings that come out at the same time. So there's this kind of four revisionist there. Revelation, you have the four beasts coming out again, kind of, kind of tying that in yeah, and, and it's that kind of language that's uh, that's similar. And I just wonder, sometimes I wonder if we're making this too complicated. And sometimes I wonder like in Daniel's situation that, okay, Nebuchadnezzar's the head of gold. He was the king of kings and Lord of lords. He was the great ruler of the world. But in his place, there's going to be three other kings, really great kings. And it's in the days of those three kings that the kingdom of God is going to come and overtake the world. Could it just be that that's what it is? Is it subsequent? Is it, does it mean that the kingdoms replace each other? I mean, we assume they do, kind of, because it, 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 it kind of would indicate that. But then as there's that question mark, it says, in the days of those kings, plural. So... And I know, like Chris White, for instance, would interpret that his, like traditionally in his in his book that he would interpret that as well. That just means, you know, in the days of the fourth kingdom, that the kingdom of God would come. For him, that's the Roman Empire, and uh, it could be, it absolutely could be, or it could just simply be that there's going to be three kingdoms. And and when you understand what the little horn does, is he subdues three kings. So maybe it, that's all it is. Maybe all it is is that there's this one great kingdom which is never going to be equaled. But after this great kingdom, there's going to be three kings and uh, three kingdoms. And it's in the days of those kings that God will set up his kingdom. Maybe that's all he's saying. Could be subsequent. Could be. 
but the revelation, the, the, the heads or the horns, there's three horns and there's one that speaks boastfully, you know, it kind of indicates this three narrative. So if you, if you put those together, maybe that's all it is. And not saying that's, you know, definitive or that's my final position, but I was just thinking about it today. But Isaiah does allude to these nations that I just mentioned, all coming into judgment at some point here. And um, it's seemingly all in this eschatological time frame, all within this the last days. And there's mention of the, uh, of the Nile drying up, which is, I mean, you talk about messing with the Middle East. That would be unbelievable. And this mention of judgment on Egypt, which if you know uh, Daniel's accounts of the king of the south and the north, I mean, God judges both for what the way they're acting and for the way that they're dealing with Israel as they're fighting each other. And uh, But then there were some other interesting things that I kind of hadn't thought about before. And uh, one, of those, one of those things, I mean, I've always, I kind of would lean towards a, a, uh, a, a or he'll, uh, an antichrist who will claim to be Jewish or to be the Jewish antichrist. I'm not going to say he's, he's born in Jerusalem or something like that. I think he's out of, he's an out of towner, but I think he'll claim to be the Jewish Messiah. Some people would differ with that. And I, I you know, I, I'm not dogmatic because I don't know. Okay. If I knew, then we wouldn't be having arguments over it. But at the end of the day, I do think there's some, uh, there's some validity there. And I just saw this one, section that was actually quite interesting. And it was a section that I thought, um, yeah, it just kind of stuck out at me in in a different way uh, than what I have seen before. And this part's in uh, Isaiah 28. And it's kind of interesting because I said before that uh, Matthew 23, Jesus kind of basically, he, he vents at the ruling class of Israel, uh, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, etc. And he rails kind of at them and, and saying how God is going to judge them, whatever, and then upon Jerusalem will come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth. And just the greater context of Daniel where he's talking about um, the deception, the Antichrist, without question, regardless if he's Jewish or not, he's going into Jerusalem and he's going to set up an image and he's going to try to seduce the Jewish people. Okay, whether or not he's he's uh, claims to be the Messiah, that's going to take place. Now, here's the interesting thing in uh, verses one through four. This is it, it just an interesting thing. I mean, Isaiah did not live during the time of the Northern Kingdom; they had been exiled. So, for him to be saying this, he's not really speaking of them. Okay, they had been exiled before then by you know hundred plus years. So he's speaking about something seemingly eschatological. And this is what it says. Oi, the proud crown of Ephraim's drunks, which it's kind of a statement, you know, oh, oh my, the proud crown of Ephraim's drunks. It talks about ruling class Ephraim's drunks. Now, what are they drunk with? This is the question of this section of verses. It's glorious beauty is fading, uh, is, is a fading flower, sorry, which is at the head of the fertile valleys of those overcome with wine. So it's this being overcome with the, you know, being overcome with something. They're drunk with something. Behold, the Lord is strong and mighty. And then there's this connotation that you pick up all through scripture that, of the day of the Lord, whether it's Armageddon or, or Gog Magogs, the same thing, like a hailstorm, a destructive tempest, like a downpour 
of overflowing water. He hurls it down to the earth with his hand. And then here's the interesting part. So in this frame of judgment, in this frame that he's angry and, and, and judging, then he mentions this, the proud of crown of Ephraim's drunks will be trampled underfoot. Now, here's kind of a big deal, because if you look at the, the concept, uh, the early church fathers kind of held to the view that they believed the Antichrist was going to be Jewish, which it made more sense back then, too, because, of course, there was no Islam. They wouldn't have even thought of it that way. They didn't, and they wouldn't have really thought Rome would have been the Antichrist. They kind of all thought that it's going to be Jewish. So no surprise there. But they, do, they did believe that there's going to be this uh, potential Ephraimite Messiah. And here's just another verse I've never heard talked about. I mean, it could easily be. But when you look at like Paul, for instance, he, he goes in Second Thessalonians, he talks about the delusion that God gives them and sells them. And, and, and you know, it's delusion, delusion is a strong word. And it's very similar to this being drunk, if you will. And then Daniel talks about, you know, him coming to power and then he gives uh, positions to people who support him. So when you hear the proud crown and Ephraim's drunks, which mean something ruling, I have no idea, something ruling and something in power and that God is going to destroy them or, or you know, the proud of crown of Ephraim's drunks will be trampled underfoot. The glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the fertile valley, like a first ripe fig for summer. Whoever sees it swallows it up while it is still in his palm. And then skip down to verse 7 through 13. But those also, or but these also reel from wine and stagger, stagger from front, uh, strong drink. So again, they've swallowed something and there's a reeling from what they've swallowed. And then it kind of goes on. And remember this connotation or this connection, uh, Matthew 23 to the ruling class. Here it says, the priests and the prophet, okay, the Cohen and the prophet, reel from strong drink, are confused because of wine. They stagger because of strong drink. They are muddled in vision. They stumble in judgment. Since all the tables are full of the filth of vomit, no place is left. And it's interesting at this point, I mean, the prophets and the priests have swallowed, have drunk the Kool-Aid. Let's just use that. Um, that's kind of how I view this. They drunk the Kool-Aid of whatever the strong drink is. And I think this is the strong delusion Paul talks about, which is a false uh, spin on Judaism. And it's going to cause them to be drunk with it. And it's the same language that in Revelation, the harlot who's drunk with the blood of the saints, you know, there's this false religion that causes the righteous to suffer. And Daniel prophesies that, that in that day, there's going to be tremendous pressure against the righteous and that they'll be sought out and killed. And so the connection seems to be quite staggering. And here it refers to Ephraim's uh, crown or proud crown of Ephraim's drunks. So it, it has this Hebraic connection of whatever it's talking about. And then it keeps going. To whom will he explain the message? To those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast, for it is a precept, um, for it must be precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And here, here's the thing. A lot of people take that as that's the way God is, you know, that's the way God wants it. No, that's not the way God wants it. This is part of the delusion. Because we'll start in verse 11. For, th 
for through stammering lips and a foreign tongue, he will speak to this people to whom he said, here is rest, give rest to the weary. Here is repose, but they would not listen. So the Lord is to them precept upon precept, uh, line upon line here a little, there a little. So they walk and fall backward and are broken, trapped and captured. So there's some kind of textual criticism, if you will, that causes them to fall, that causes them to be broken, to be trapped, to be captured. I don't know what else to say. This is Isaiah prophesying, not me. And it kind of would would indicate like their hermeneutic, their interpretation system is what causes them to be ensnared. And then in verse 15, it's a very powerful verse. Because you have said, we cut a covenant with death. We made a pact with Sheol, which I believe has very strong antichrist or anti-Messiah language where they're literally like making a pact with the devil. I mean, it's really what kind of is going on there. So when the overflowing scourge passes through, it won't come for us for we have made lies our refuge and hid ourselves in falsehood. In other words, there's going to be pressure. There's going to be strong pressure against them because the Bible uh, talks about famines in this part of the land, pestilences, uh, the Nile river is going to dry up. There's a tremendous amount of pressure put on the region. And then you have this covenant of death, uh, a pact with with Sheol. So when the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come for us. They think because they have made this unholy covenant, because they've done this, that they'll somehow escape, uh, even though they know they're adulterating themselves. Okay, and that's what it says. We've made lies our refuge and hid ourselves in falsehood. You know, it's just staggering. And then chapter twenty nine, just following up with that. Then you have him coming against Jerusalem, a strong warning, and a multitude of foes will become like fine dust, and the multitude of the uh, terrifying chaff that passed away, it will happen in an instant. Suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord with thunder, earthquake, huge noise, whirlwind, storm wind, flame, consuming fire. It'll be like a dream, a night vision, the multitude of the nations warring against Jerusalem. Yes, all warring against her. The ramparts around her and her besiegers, it'll be like a hungry man dreaming and behold, he is eating, but awakes with his hunger unsatisfied. So they're just can't wait to come against Jerusalem seemingly. And it says with the multitude of all the nations warring against Mount Zion, wait and be astounded, blind yourselves and be blind, drunk, but not with wine, stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out on you a spirit of deep sleep and has shut your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. So this entire vision is for you like the words of a sealed scroll, which they have give, which they give to the one who knows books saying, read this, please. He says, I can't because it's sealed. So, I mean, I could keep going, but that's, it's just, it's showing there's this right after 28 when it's talking about, you know, these Ephraim, crown of Ephraim, whatever this is. It just has this false messianic notes. Combine that with Matthew 24, where Jesus is warning of false messiahs, false prophets. He didn't warn of invaders as much, even though he did. And Luke talks about the invaders surrounding Jerusalem. But as a whole, his warning was against false messiahs and false prophets. 
and here you have a connection proud crown of Ephraim's drunks it's just to me it solidifies that at least at the very least false messiahs are in play maybe the the antichrist himself might not be i don't know but at the very least it's going to be a time of false messianic fervor it'll be a time of false prophets it'll be a time of confusion it'll be a time of delusion it'll be a time of confrontation it'll be a time of testing and uh the reality is on the opposite side of that lies the most glorious reality uh, that we could ever imagine. That is the messianic kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus will bring in because it has gotten so bad and so, da- uh, so, so difficult, so challenging, and he'll come and rescue us and save us in that day, which is what Isaiah, Isaiah talks about in many different places. So I'm not going to take more time. I think that's enough for today, but... Uh, highly encourage you to study it it's really not that hard of a book to study and when you when you start to see these connections again pop up it just amazes me you know it it seems there's no question that the stage is is israel uh and the nations surrounding it and that there's we're probably not there yet we're probably a ways off um before this could be fulfilled based upon what i see we're not there yet but we're getting closer and um it certainly could happen quickly, but I do believe there's going to, there needs to be some wars that take place. We're not there yet. There's still some regional issues and things that have to come up and, uh, that's going to define, um, and, 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 and like Jesus says, when you see the evidence of these things, um, start to happen, like it's been predicted, then you know, you're in that time frame and you're in that generation. It's when the signs of this age or of that age begin, Within that generation, it's over. Not one more generation will pass. It's the end. So we've not seen those signs yet. As I understand it, we've not seen the conflicts that's prophesied. We've not seen those nations. Uh, they're not in a position of power. Um, we're still you know, in a, in a world where too many big superpowers have hold of it, but it could easily change. We never know what the future holds, so... Anyway, that's all I have to, uh, for today. So God bless you until next time. Shalom. Shalom.